So once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody also listening on the podcast channel. Uh, tonight's actually special. Special in that the whole focus of tonight is going to be on being joyful and giving thanks. Being thankful, right? For all the blessings, everything that God has done for us. And here in this country, we certainly have a lot to be thankful for. I know there's a lot going on political-wise, but there is just so much to be thankful for. Uh, I had just gotten back. I was with the medical mission team in Guatemala up in the mountains and just to experience all that and to come back. That's right, yeah. We just have so much to be thankful for. We have no idea. Even just hot water from the shower is like, whoo, amazing. So in preparing for this teaching tonight, there's a whole lot of Bible verses we're going through my head that I was thinking about teaching on. But the ones we're going to study tonight really have stuck out for me as being good examples of being thankful and, being re- and, and uh, rejoicing. Uh, so that's really what we're going to be talking about. Our joy, our happiness, our level of thankfulness, let me just say this, should not be based on our earthly wealth, right? Where the things seem to be going well for us, right? Because humans tend to place importance on things that don't really matter. Our joy, our level of thankfulness should come from the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, right? It just, it should, that we belong to him, all right? And that's what we're going to focus on, and that's what Paul wants us to focus on when he wrote the book of Philippians. That's what we're going to be uh, reading from tonight. Now, a little background on what we're going to be reading. The book of Philippians, it's one of the prison epistles, meaning Paul wrote it while he was in jail. To put it bluntly, he was locked up. He was incarcerated. He was chained to a wall inside a primitive cell. The year was around 61 AD, and Paul was the, one of the prisoners of the emperor Nero. So you ever heard that name? He's a real guy. You can Google it. There's all kinds of awful stuff. But if you know your history, Nero was an awful dictator, and he actually took particular joy in torturing and killing Christians. And there's, there's actually stories of him taking Christians, impaling them on wooden poles, lighting, and then putting them on poles in his garden and lighting them up on fire with tar to provide light for his parties that he would uh, have. Now, I know, bummer, but stay with me. <laughs> the reason, I know, went away, yay! The reason I share this information It's really important to know the environment, what was going on in Paul's world when he wrote this, okay? Paul was not sitting here in the United States, the richest country in the world, a nice church in a town where people go on vacation to. He'd been locked up by an awful dictator who did that. He was sitting in jail, and yet he still had joy, right? For all that was going on, he understood how great the gift of Jesus Christ was. And he took the time to write about it in jail. And he did that so he could share his joy with others. See, that's mind-blowing. That's huge, right? And this is what we want to do tonight here in this church. We want to share that joy. We want to talk about the joy Paul had and why he had it, right? So before we jump into, we're going to actually study Philippians chapter 4, but before we do that, I want to jump into Philippians chapter 2, right? Because we want, to, we want to lay some groundwork, right? Where was Paul was coming from, what he was thinking of. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse, verses 2 to 3. If you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. Everything will be on the screen behind me. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. This is what he says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, this is, this is beautiful, but it can also seem a little strange if you're reading it for the first time. Because first, Paul starts off by saying, complete, complete my joy by being of the same mind. What he's referring to is there was likely, the people he was writing to in Philippi, there was likely an argument, there was a disagreement, there was something that was separating the people. There was division going on. Something was pulling them apart. Sometimes in churches or in groups, there can be big things, there can be little things. But his point was his joy will increase if they come together again, if they resolve their differences. Conflict, separation, they suck all the joy out of the room, don't they? Right? Anybody having Thanksgiving tomorrow? You hear stories where you're oh, this family member's coming, and it's going to be all this tension, right? He's on, Seinfeld's a great example of all that kind of stuff, right? Really funny TV show. But that's what happens with conflict when it's not resolved, when people don't get along. But on the other hand, when there's love, when there's forgiveness, patience and understanding, joy increases, right? And that's what he's referring to. Then look what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, this is a heavy part, count others more, more significant than yourselves. Now, Paul is explaining one of the key ingredients of having joy and being thankful is to purposely put yourself lower than other people. Now, in the real world, in the business world, that's what? Madness. You're never going to survive if you do that, right? You're never going to get very far if you do that. But Jesus always taught us to live opposite of the world, didn't he? He says, live in the world, but don't be of the world. And if you live your life raising yourself up, crawling your way to the top, looking down on others, I can tell you, you will never be truly happy. You'll always live, be living in a world where there's broken relationships, there's separation, backstabbing, always trying to get more stuff. You are never going to be happy. But, like Paul says, if we intentionally place ourselves below others, think of others first, raise them up, we're going to be building relationships. We're going to be helping each other. We're going to have a lot more joy in our lives. And this is the very specific reason. This is why we should be doing this. It's in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. And he found in human form, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. He's talking about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name. Jesus led by example. He lowered himself on the cross to the point of death. He died for people that were sinful. He didn't do anything. He didn't deserve it. He died for others. He placed everybody else's needs above his own. And because of that, because of what he did, God the Father exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. Jesus is our perfect example. And Paul is taking the time, I always like to remind myself this, while he is unjustly incarcerated, to write this out. So we know this. That's important. Like, there, like there's a, this is a good Seinfeld episode. If you ever get arrested, the one phone call you get to make, that's an important call, right? That's the one that counts. And there's a little episode about that. If you're incarcerated and you spend your time writing about Jesus Christ, what does that say? That's the most important thing. And that's what he's doing. That's his focus, right? So that's the whole background, the buildup for chapter 4, which we're going to head into now. So if you have your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 4. 
And let's go read about, let's read about this great joy about being saved by Jesus Christ. This is what he said, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, this statement has three really big ideas. The first is just rejoice. Just rejoice. Be happy. Celebrate all the time. No matter the circumstance, no matter in good times or bad times, Paul tells us we still have so much to be thankful for. We do. The second big idea there is to be gentle. Now, the Greek word here for gentle is epikia, and it means more than just being gentle. Like if you're holding a baby or a small puppy, be gentle. Okay. It's more than that. Epikia means to be gentle, kind, modest, patient, unwilling to engage, showing mercy. So it's a big word. It means a whole lot of stuff and encompasses a lot of ideas. But what it means is we need to follow Jesus, do exactly what he did. Like sometimes we think of gentleness, well, be nice, hold the door for somebody. When someone sneezes, say, bless you. That's polite stuff. That's fine. Paul is instructing us to do something that is clearly beyond that. We're to be so gentle, so kind, so forgiving, having so much mercy. People see that and go, wow. Right? Here's a really good example in the real world. Think about everybody you know, not necessarily here in church, just in normal lives, at work, people you golf with, whatever. Think about the level of gentleness, the way the Bible describes. That's normal in the world, right? So just whatever that is. Right? You got a number of what's normal. Whatever that, normal is, whatever that is for you, whatever you experience, as Christ followers, we're to stand out by how much more we are. Does that make sense? If we do the same as everybody else, then there's nothing that great about Christianity, right? But if we're to do more, that's what we're called out to. We're to, be, we're to stand out that way, right? And it should be seen by everyone. He uses the word evident. It should be evident, which means it should be obvious, very clear, in your face, right there. Now, I want to pause for a second on this and elaborate just a bit. Because people who are truly happy in the Lord, people who are truly happy deep down, they are slow to anger. They're slow to take offense at the normal stuff that happens in the world. They are. They don't get preoccupied, excuse me, preoccupied, distracted with the bad things, that, the normal frustrating things that are common to man. The world is imperfect. We all sin. We all have our shortcomings. Everyone here got their own little buttons that can be pushed, certain things that set you off, right? We all have stuff. But Paul's making the point, that's all common. Everybody has that. Remember, where was he sitting when he's writing this? In prison. He's locked up. But he never wants us to forget how joyful we can be. That we can be gentle, kind, in the midst of difficulties of life. Just because things are going poorly or having a bad day doesn't mean we let all that out the window. We should be those things at all times to the extent that other people see that. And they're going, wow, I want to know how that person does that. That's what should draw us in. Next, Paul says, the Lord is near, which means, what he means here is that we should live our lives knowing that Christ will return soon. Maybe tomorrow. We know he's coming back sometime. We know when he comes back, he's going to take those who believe to be with him forever in heaven, right? So our lives should reflect that. It's also important because if people don't think he's coming back, or for a very long time, people might get to behave a little different. It's like, is the teacher looking? Is he here? Woo! 
Yeah, well, I have plenty of time. Plenty of time. I know people that have said that. I got time. I'll worry about Jesus later on. Yeah, I worked in the ER. I flew in the helicopter. The people that come in on an ambulance thought they had time too. It happens. I don't know. All right? So the more distant, the more remote, the more busy God seems with other things, the more it feels like it's not a big deal. So Paul's like, no, Jesus is near. He is near. Because the point is, if we stay focused on Jesus, if we use, have just as much gusto for him, thinking he's coming tomorrow or at 8 p.m. as he is in a thousand years, no matter what, we do the same, then we show him that we really do believe in him, no matter what. Now let's continue. Let's read verse 6. He says, don't be anxious about anything, <laughs> right? But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, this is a really cool statement, but it also comes from someone who, let's be honest, really knows what he's talking about. First off, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, if we're being honest, that's one of those statements by itself can be hard to live out in real life, right? Admit to, I mean, I, we're in church. Come on, right? Anyone here willing to admit that? Because I put myself in that category. But what's cool, Paul is not just telling us to not be worried, and then that's where the sentence stops. Right? He's also telling us how to do it. The statement, if he just said, do not be anxious about anything, you can be like, yeah, that's not so easy to do. And if that's where Paul left it, I would agree with you. Right? Because there are many times in life where it's perfectly normal, it's perfectly reasonable to be a little anxious. Right? Life happens. But that's not how Paul left it. What Paul is actually telling us is that a constant, persistent prayer life is what we need to help us not be anxious. And this is why he's right. Having anxiety involves fear, doubt, uneasiness, dread, not knowing what's happening, and to get nervous. Here's a great example. My iPad, I have everything written out word for word. If this little beauty shut down all of a sudden, I do not have this memorized word for word, just so You'd see some anxiety, right? Things feel that way because they feel out of control. It feels like there's no plan, right? When things are falling apart. It's almost like that feeling of falling and you can't grab onto anything, right? You're just trying to reach for security of some kind. And the reason I get so detailed in describing that is because those are feelings. It's how it feels. Like there's a, there's a, uh, there's a great experiment that when I was in school, I had a psychology professor, would, he said uh, you can do, he said now if you take a, a, just a board, you know, like a regular uh, two by eight, and you walk on it on a floor, nobody has problems, right? If it was just on the floor, now you take that same board and you go up about 200 feet in the air, suddenly everybody's got a problem. It becomes very, very difficult. It just, it just does, because it's in our mind. Nothing's changed. We have that feeling, right? We feel a certain way, but that doesn't mean we actually are that way. And these things happen when we're not grounded in faith, when we don't trust in God. So Paul says, don't be anxious, because I, need you, I want you to pray to God constantly. Pray to him, talk to him, share your thoughts and fears, bring everything to him. Lean on him, literally, Lean on him. When you can't grab onto something, it feels like there's nothing there, tell God about it. Tell him how you feel. 
You can say, I feel like I'm falling, I need help, I need help. And then trust him. One of the main things Paul wanted to convey here is that there's nothing in our lives that we can't take to God. There is nothing that we can't bring to him. Were you scared and full of fear this morning? Tell him. You still having difficulty tonight? Tell him. You still struggling tomorrow? Tell him. It's not a one-time thing. It's a persistent prayer life. And the more that you lean on him, the more you take your cares to him, the better you're going to feel, the more he's going to be there for you. Trust him in your good times and in your bad times. Because uh, as a pastor, I can tell you, sometimes we get this idea that if we're scared, we're having a bad day, and we pray in the morning, and then nothing really feels like it happens, and later that day you still feel scared, like, man, God didn't answer me. I know people that will try anything else. They'll try whatever, those crystals, whatever. They'll just, they'll just keep moving on. I feel like God didn't answer, but I want to say, hold on a second. Sometimes God is not quick to move us out of a strenuous situation, a scary situation. He's not. Just because you want out of a scary situation doesn't mean he's ready to move you out. He's in the business of building solid Christians. Someone who can share their faith, someone who's been through something difficult and can say for a fact, God got me through it. That's what he does. He wants you to be able to withstand difficult times. Paul is the perfect example. I'm going to say this a couple times tonight. He was in prison writing this stuff down. What would most people be doing? I need a good lawyer. No, I need a better lawyer. I need some money. He'll bail me out. What's he doing? He's writing about having persistent prayer and not worrying, not being anxious. How normal would it be to feel depressed and scared if you were locked up unfairly and you weren't locked up just one night, you stayed locked up, all right? See, many people, including most Christians, would very quickly begin to doubt God. Oh, what's going on? This isn't the, this is not supposed to be happening, right? Especially if you stayed locked up. But maybe God wants to work through you in prison. He did for Paul. Maybe you're the best one to reach those inmates. Maybe it's your personality, your experiences. will help you reach some of the guards that work deep in the prison. Here's a good general question. How many of you would be okay if God used you to save like 50 people? Just in general. Everybody should hopefully raise their hand, right? Or at least nod so I know you're... All right? But what, what if God says, I want you to save, I'm going to use you to save 50 people but you're going to need to be in the Indian River County Jail to do it. And it's okay. You can say, woo. That raises the stakes a little bit, right? But if we lean on God, if we trust him, like Paul was doing, we have nothing to fear. There's no reason to be anxious. But if you still do, that's okay. We all need courage. There were times the disciples, remember, they'd been with Jesus for a long time, several years. And there were consistent times they still asked for help, clarification, understanding, and prayer. Did you know when they asked Jesus how to pray, they had already been casting out demons? Go back and look at the timeline. Who here feels comfortable to go, ever seen like uh, The Exorcist? Who feels comfortable exercising demons right now? Right? 
The disciples had already done that. And then they said, you know, we need to be learn how to pray better. They were always looking to improve. They always realized there's more. We can. And so that's what Paul's saying. Yeah, you're going to have hard times. Yes, lean on God. You can always do more. He can always build you up. God will be there for you. Let's continue with verse 7. He says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And i got to tell you, I love that verse. When I was a kid growing up, uh, we're from Illinois, we had a small uh, traditional church, and our pastor regularly said that at the end of the service. Now, it was great, not only because I knew the service was like, you know, I was getting antsy and it was about over. It's really good. It's what it means. It always stuck with me. Now, what's interesting about this sentence is that includes a great promise of peace, which is awesome. But it's also, Paul includes a caveat there, right? And he says, this peace that transcends all understanding, which basically means it's so big, it's so awesome, so huge, so all-inclusive, beyond what we can wrap our heads around. That's the peace that God's going to put on your heart. That's what's going to protect your heart in Jesus. So it's always fascinated me to a degree because that type of peace, not the type of peace in the United States, you know, now we, peace is generally the absence of war for the most part, right? That's a good general description. Peace, the way we use it, is like the concept of time. It's kind of we can, the way we understand it, right? We understand it in human terms. But once we switch to God's terms, we get left in the dust. For example, our sense of time is based on, generally speaking, what? Earth traveling around the sun, it spins, you know what I mean? It spins on its axis. It's all relative to what's happening here on Earth, right? And that's changed. If you know history, that's changed several times throughout history. We don't, haven't always had the same clock, the same calendar, all that kind of stuff. But God has no equal here on Earth. Right? He's beyond earth. He's beyond God is eternal. To him, there is no time. There is no beginning and there is no end. So time, once you start talking about God and eternity, is like, how do you wrap your head around that? And the same is true with his peace. We're not talking about the earthly peace. We're talking about God's peace, which involves creating the universe, knowing everything, controlling everything, knowing all things, Having all of that, the peace that comes from that, trusting in him. As we talked about earlier, fear and the feelings of fear that we get, the anxiety come from not knowing, not being in control. But God is the perfect example of the opposite of that. So what Paul is giving as a blessing, he says, may all of God's peace, which comes from his understanding, his knowledge, his power, everything, and his son, may that protect your heart. See, that is huge. That's enormous. It's hard to wrap your head around how massive that is. And that's what he's saying while he's in prison. And he says this. He wants us to know that we are safe. When you're scared and you feel out of control, you actually aren't. It feels that way, but you're not. When you feel lost, when you feel alone, you're not. It's a feeling. The creator of the universe knows you. He created you for a purpose, and he will be there through, with you through it all. Now, what I think is cool about this teaching from Paul is the beginning, Paul starts out with these big, awesome, huge ideas. And now we're going to see him wrapping it up and bringing it home 
so to speak, but the way he does it is very elegant. It's very simple, but it's also poetic. And I just love this. It's in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Surround yourself with those things. So he clearly knows the heaviness of, the, of the, everything he's taught. It's also, Paul, Paul understands how hard it is to wrap your head around some of those things. So what he's doing is simplifying these things, and he's giving, him re, giving us just really, really good advice on how to deal with the everyday ups and downs of life. And this time he uses words that are simple and true, and they don't need a lot of expectation. He says, noble and right and pure, lovely, admirable. And he says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about those things. Wrap yourselves in those things. Paul says that because all good things come from God. All those things come from God on a continual basis. So no matter what we experience in our lives, good, bad, up, down, right, left, politics, pandemic, wealth, poverty, you, know, you name it, if we stay focused on the good things, godly things, then we are staying on track. Now here's also the second, the additional benefit of doing this. No matter where we are, no matter what's happening, no matter what we're going through, we'll still see that we're blessed. Just like Paul feels blessed. There's still things to be joyful about. Let me explain something that I've seen personally a number of times. In healthcare, specifically in the emergency room, you get to see people go through their worst, their absolute worst. Like I said, nobody calls 911 and takes an ambulance ride because something good is happening. Right? It just doesn't work out that way. But what's unique about that scenario in that moment, you see people for who they really are. You know what I mean? In normal life, even here in church to a degree, but at work, at the grocery store, wherever, you see the version of people that they want you to see, the facade, the, you know what I mean, the front that they put on. We do. We all have that to a degree. Some more than others, you know, different points of our life, that's fine. But in a scary type event like that, all that falls away. A hundred percent. You see people for who they are. And the realization of possible imminent death is just, is what we, I was called as the great equalizer. No matter who you are, what your bank account is, when you're looking at hours potentially, And there were times when I walked in the room in ER, and you can, you can see it on their face. You can feel it in the air, right? It was palpable. And you can't blame people when they're going through that because of the experience. But here's why I tell that story. Those same scenarios happen to everybody. People that are grounded and people that are, have no ground, are not, don't have faith in God. But those cases where someone has true faith in God, when they're going through that, they are still kind and patient. And they are grateful for what everything you're doing for them in the moment you're doing it. I mean, that's profound. That's huge. While things are unfolding, they were thankful and they had peace. Now let that sink in for a moment. That's like Paul sitting in prison. He had peace. How do you have, how, how do you have peace sitting in prison locked to a wall? You're either crazy or what? You actually have something. 
something genuine, something that's real. And like Paul describes, what's in their heart, it's right, it's pure, it's lovely, it's admirable. They stay focused on those things. They get their peace from God. And I can tell you, the doctors and nurses can tell. You can pick up on that. It affects others around them. It's amazing to witness. And you can see this, again, with families. There are some families that have no knowledge of God. There's a lot of dysfunction. So you got that going on, then you bring another five or six of them in the room, and now what you got? Fourth of July, right? But other families that are grounded, they actually come together more. There's love in the room. And the healthcare people that go in, you can feel it. They can feel it too. And that's a great... If you're ever in the emergency room and you want to reach one of the doctors or the nurses, you know, just saying. It exudes from you. People can sense it. It's a beautiful thing. Now at this time, I want to briefly share two Bible verses. One from Romans, the other from 2 Corinthians. They address this topic. They really do a fabulous job. Let's look at that now. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're going to talk about that. And then the second one is 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take it captive, every thought, and make it obedient to Christ. So first off, Romans tells us to not follow the pattern of this world, but renew our mind. This means that God understands how hard things can be and that we are human. Life happens, we get pulled away, we get scared, we get nervous. That's why it says to renew your mind. You're going to get pulled away. Yes, you're going to have stress, you're going to have anxiety, but when you do, renew your mind. Renew your faith. Pray to God. Reach out to him. Reach out to your Christian brothers and sisters. And then 2 Corinthians pretty much gets tough about this stuff. It says, demolish those thoughts, those arguments, the stuff that pulls you away, the stuff that blinds you from seeing God. Because if anxiety and fear do anything, it's what? Tunnel vision. What is tunnel vision? You don't see anything else but what's right here. Don't be still is what it says. It says, demolish those thoughts and arguments. Don't be passive. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. Take charge of those thoughts and submit them to Jesus. This is good. This is, remember, Jesus didn't train up his disciples to be weak, scared, and timid, did he? He didn't tell us to be kind, patient, and forgiving out of weakness. We're to be those things, kind, patient, loving, forgiving, because we are strong in him, because we can endure. We can do that because Jesus is who he said he is. Because Jesus saved the world, out of his power, not his strength, we can be that. And because of Jesus, we can go anywhere in the world that he calls us. The church of Jesus Christ was created to take his light into dark places. I love this next word. I don't you ever forget that Jesus told Peter, he said, you're the rock on which my church was built. And he says, the gates of Hades will not withstand my church. And people first read that and think, okay, you know, the gates are in heaven. No, no, he's talking about the gates around Hades. The gates around the place of the dead is not safe from his church. So his church is to go to the very edges of the gates of the place of the dead and save people. 
pluck them. Because of that, we have no reason to fear. When it comes, and it will, we're to stand up to it. We don't cower away. We submit it to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, in the last verse from chapter 4, verse 9, this is what it tells us. Whatever you have learned or perceived or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, when Paul says this, this is really cool. He's putting himself up as an example. And this is really the test of a good disciple because he's saying, look at what I do, look at what I say, examine my teachings, use me as an example. He's taking full responsibility for everything that he does. And he's, in a, he's a remarkable example of faith. There's, even, there's an event recorded in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas, where they were arrested, they're thrown into prison and they show joy at this time. I'm going to share that with you. Acts 16, 23 to 25. After they had been severely flogged, you know what flogging is? It's whipping. After they, it didn't say lightly whipped, as that's a little better, severely whipped, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer com- was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God. And then you guys read out loud what the last, what it says. That is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. This story is amazing, amazing for a lot of reasons, but I want to focus on the joy that they had. Even in prison, they had reason, reason to celebrate. Nothing man could throw at them took away their joy. What was their joy based on? Was it based on their personal success? The number of houses they had? No, not at all. They celebrated because they were saved by Jesus Christ. They personally possessed joy that came from knowing Jesus. That their eternal home was not here, but with him. And because of that, they were able to sing at night after being beaten in prison. And the crazy part is, is what? Other prisoners probably went through the same thing. It was dark. You know there's no bathrooms in those places 2,000 years ago, right? There's no light, probably horrible ventilation. They've been beaten. They're chained to the wall. And they hear a couple of dudes down the hall singing. Can you imagine what that would do to you? For just a brief moment, a little joy was, a little happiness was seeping through those walls. You know their voices carry. They would have echoed off the walls. And just for a moment, they would have gotten a little bit of the taste of the joy that Paul and Silas had. A little bit of light was brought into that dark place. Now, as I begin to wrap up uh, for tonight, I want to share some of you, with, with, with you, what some of that light would have felt like, what it was sounded like. In the book of Revelation, John gives us a really good description of what it'll be like when we're finally called home, when we're finally in the presence of God. It's in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe, 
He will do this. Wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Our God brings life and joy and happiness. He takes all the sorrows and he he himself wipes them away. And when we come to believe in that and trust in that, nothing can take away our joy and our happiness. So tomorrow is Thanksgiving. It's a day specifically about being thankful, enjoying our blessings. So my request to you is enjoy the day. That's what it's about. Spend time with your family, your friends, have good food, tell all kinds of stories, tell good jokes, clean ones. (laughs) Celebrate. God created this world and put you here for a reason. It's biblical to celebrate and have joy. So please do that. And let's pray. Pray together. Father, tonight we come to you with joyful and thankful hearts. We thank you for every blessing we have, and there are many. We thank you for the holiday that we're going to share tomorrow. We thank you for all the good food and especially the desserts that we're going to enjoy. Everything good in our life comes from you. But the best thing we have ever received is the salvation we get through your son, Jesus. We are blessed that you saved us when we didn't deserve it. We are blessed that you forgave us when we needed it. And we are blessed because we have hope in your name. Father, again, we say thank you. We love you. We honor you. And we pray that all people will come to know your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.